Aboard, this is Call Sign Prestige. Permission to open up on this balloon bogey? Roger that. Take him out. Put that shit on TikTok. Before I came to office, the story was about how the People's Republic of China was increasing its power and America was failing in the world. Not anymore. Almost your ass and we'll give you cash, it'll be a blast. Having the microwaves will be held to pay, we're in Taiwan to stay. Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we really hope you enjoyed our new song, New Cold War, brought to you by producer Jake and his band Malik. And we're hoping to have more stuff like that coming soon as we force producer Jake to work above and beyond his abilities. So again, hope you like it. Hope you enjoy the lyrics and more of that stuff coming soon. But Derek, from from that fun, from that sunshine, uh, let's get a little serious. And why don't we start with the topic that's been roiling cyberspace, going everywhere, trawling through the metasphere this week, and that is the Nord Stream explosion. So why don't you give us a little bit of a praise on what that was and what's going on? Sure. Um, I want to start with just a brief update on the war, uh, which is to say that uh, it, there are reports that about half or at least uh, some portion of the city of Bakhmut has fallen into Russian hands. Bakhmut has been the focus of uh, Russian attacks for weeks now. Uh, the Ukrainian government shows no inclination still to withdrawing its forces from the city. Uh, it sounds like they're they're attempting to uh, bleed out the Wagner Group, basically, which has been the the point of you know kind of taking the point on this operation to uh, and has been doing basically human wave attacks with their. Uh, recruits, I put that in quotes, the, the people they get out of the prisons, basically, in Russia. The, it sounds like the, the Ukrainians are hoping to just kind of wear them down and uh, cost them enough manpower that Wagner Group can't do this anywhere else. I think that is a uh, fantasy, but it is uh, apparently what they're trying to do. And as I say, about half the city, the, the portion that's east of the Bakhmutka uh, River, appears to be in Russian hands at this point. So it's probably only a matter of time before the uh, the rest of it is as well. Uh, as you say, the big story this week has been on uh, the Nord Stream uh, discussion, who, de- who done it, who, who blew up the pipelines back in September. Uh, folks are probably aware that Seymour Hirsch published uh, an investigative piece uh, at his Substack uh, a couple of weeks ago, 
uh, suggesting that it was the United States, that he had uh, details on uh, how it was done, what, uh, you know, what ships were used, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The U.S. intelligence community has now uh, come out with its own claims, uh, dutifully laundered through the New York Times, uh, suggesting that the pipelines were blown up by some unspecified pro-Ukrainian group. Uh, they didn't go into detail, uh, except to specify that there's no, apparently, according to these guys, there's no evidence uh, that this pro-Ukrainian group is directly connected to the Ukrainian government, uh, which is not to say it couldn't be connected to some element within the Ukrainian establishment, military or government, uh, or that there's no involvement of, let's say, past Ukrainian uh, special forces, retired, you know, folks, whatever, uh, or, uh, you know, people from other countries that have military training. It's just, uh, gosh, apparently we can't find any connection between them and any existing government like Ukraine or the United States. Uh, this, as I say, was uh, published uh, very, very dutifully by the New York Times this week. It, it's also uh, since then been reported that the German government has been investigating the Nord Stream uh, explosions. Germany, of course, uh, you know, this is a pipeline that ran directly or two pipelines that ran directly from Russia into Germany. So the German government does have uh, some vested interest here. They've found apparently that a group of at least six people, there were six people on the boat that they claim to have found uh, and you know, searched already uh, that was involved in the bombing. Uh, they say, uh, I believe five men and one woman uh, are believed to have rented the vessel from a Polish company. Uh, the boat uh, is possibly owned by two Ukrainians. This is another part of the investigation. Uh, all of this points to me to uh, some sort of operation involving uh, deniable proxies, possibly by the Ukrainian government, possibly by uh, the Ukrainians in co collaboration with somebody else. Uh, but the Germans aren't aren't there yet. They're not at the point where they're ready to point fingers to a, at a state actor. Uh, so, and they've even I've seen German officials raise the possibility that this was a false flag operation that was meant to look like the Ukrainians did it, but in reality, it's to you know, point the finger at them. I think that's uh, getting way ahead of ourselves. So basically, uh, you know, I don't think we know any more about this uh, incident than we did before this week started. But it's clear that. Uh, the United States in particular wanted to get a story out there. So they must feel like, I would assume they feel like uh, the Seymour Hirsch story got enough traction that they needed to throw some some chaff in the air, throw some smoke in the air. Uh, and uh, they've done that. Uh, now there's this German report that do it doesn't contradict anything that was in the New York Times, but seems to be a little more fully developed uh, and may point in, in a somewhat different direction. I don't know. But again, it's, uh, uh, it still uh, remains to be seen if, if anybody's ever going to get to the bottom of this. I think uh, I would say the one thing that's clear is that the United States, Germany, NATO, whomever is investigating this, uh, has not found any evidence that points toward Russia because that would be A1 headlines in every newspaper in the United States. It would be breaking news on all the cable networks. Uh, and we haven't seen that. So they, they clearly haven't found anything that they can even spin uh, uh, kind of uh, confidently in Russia's direction. It's interesting because I think this debate will basically just go on uh, for, for a long time because it doesn't seem like one that's going to be totally resolved and it really allows well, everyone no, to I mean, yell no at each other. Yeah. Right, and there's no forum to resolve it. There's never going to be any... 
you know, yeah, it's prosecution of anybody for this, whether it was, you know, whether it was Russia or was the, you know, the United States or some, you know, group that uh, has U.S. sympathy. No, nobody's ever going to allow a prosecution over this. So, yeah, it's, right. it's, it'll just go uh, on forever. <laughs> right. And and the, the consequences, if it's found to have been uh, somebody with involvement in the Ukrainian government or, you know, involvement with the United States and, and maybe, you know, the Germans weren't on the same page or some other, you know, one of these other partners in the pro-Ukraine, the broad pro-Ukraine uh, community here, you know, the consequences of splintering that community are so severe that I don't think uh, the powers that be would allow that information to become public. Yeah, they can't. Um, all right, but we'll we'll keep you updated as things develop. Uh, and let's move on to what's going on in Turkey. Yes. Uh, so the Turkish opposition has been uh, dithering around for some time now. Of course, people are aware there's an election, general election coming up uh, in May. Uh, there was some talk of maybe postponing it because of the recent earthquakes. Uh, that's not going to happen, apparently. Uh, so the Turkish opposition, the, there's a six-party coalition c- that includes most of the major opposition parties. So there's a couple that are not part of it. We'll talk about those in a minute. Uh, but they've been kind of hemming and hawing about uh, a, a unified, presenting a unified front against uh, the Turkish government or against the incumbents and particularly uh, incumbent President Recep Tayyip Erdogan in the election. Uh, they finally have coalesced behind the leader of the Republican People's Party or CHP, Kemal Kilic Darolu. Uh, this was a source of some tension, however, as on Friday... The leader of one of the the coalition partners, the EE party or Good Party, Meral Akshener, kind of uh, burnt, seemingly burned her bridges with the rest of the coalition. Uh, said, you know, they're we're, they're going to nominate Kilish Darlo. I don't agree with this. I don't think he's a strong candidate. I think he's going to lose. Uh, she suggested uh, the the mayor of Istanbul, Ekrem Imamoglu, uh, or the mayor of Ankara, Mansur Yavash, uh, as alternatives. Uh, and then kind of seemed to distance herself from the coalition. By Monday, through whatever alchemy uh, the, the opposition leaders did over the weekend, Auctionaire had come back into the fold, and this was their bid. This is when they made their big unveiling of Kilij Darulu as their candidate. Uh, one of the things that apparently got her back on board was the promise that both Imamulu and Yavash would at some point be named uh, vice presidents under Kilish Darulu, assuming that he uh, defeats Erdogan in the election. Um, this this is all very interesting because uh, Erdogan seems vulnerable. Polling suggests that he's vulnerable. Uh, the earthquake may have made him more vulnerable. There's been a lot of criticism of his government's response. Polling, uh, as I say, does suggest he's vulnerable. Doesn't suggest that he's definitely going to lose. So there's been some, you know, there's been sort of some polling that I think he could look at and say he's in okay shape, some polling that's uh, maybe a little more problematic for Erdogan. I don't, uh, you know, I wouldn't, uh, uh, I don't think it's been definitive one way or the other. Um, but this may be the opposition's best chance, basically, to take him down and, uh, you know, maybe undo some of the changes that he's made to uh, strengthen the presidency, to make it more difficult for uh, his party, his Justice Development Party, and himself to be uh, kind of assailed electorally. So this may be their their last chance to really uh, kind of stop what he's been doing. 
Um, I, I think Kilish Darulu is is probably their weakest possible candidate. I mean, he's uh, he's older. He's not going to appeal necessarily to younger voters. He represents uh, a past with the the, peop- the Republican People's Party that is not terribly popular uh, with the Turkish people. So I don't entirely understand the decision uh, to nominate him. But uh, with Akshener back on board. Uh, they may have, there may be some hope that they can win the election outright. They can win the presidential election outright in the first round, uh, rather than taking it to a runoff where, uh, you know, Erdogan might be vulnerable, maybe not. You'd rather obviously win in the first round, or at least you want to prevent Erdogan from doing so. Now, one of the uh, other opposition parties that's not in the coalition, the largest of them, in fact, the People's Democratic Party or HDP, uh, is has said it may uh, join everybody else in kind of nominating or endorsing Kilich Darulu instead of fielding its own candidate in the election. Uh, in theory, this could increase the chances of the opposition winning a first round victory and not, uh, you know, avoiding a runoff. On the other hand, HDP is a is a bit of a double edged sword in Turkish politics. Its base is uh, pretty liberal or pretty left wing, I should say, uh, and pretty uh, very Kurdish. Uh, so. You know, if you're talking about conservative voters, Turkish nationalist voters, n- n- two blocks that are going to go majority for Erdogan, but which you you know Kilish Darla would like to peel off enough support that it uh, you know he could uh, uh, you know he he needs to peel off enough support to have a chance of winning. Uh, the endorsement of HCP may may not serve him very well uh, with those groups, so that that remains to be seen. Uh, but obviously, uh, you know, the, the big break in the Turkish opposition that was advertised on Friday, uh, has been repaired apparently. Thanks, Derek. And let's talk about the greatest country on earth, the United States. And, uh, particular, let's start with the scourge that is Havana syndrome. Well, Danny, I, I hope you're sitting down. Uh, actually I can see that you, you are, that's good. I hope, uh, listeners are sitting down because I have some, Shocking news to report. The uh, U.S. intelligence community has concluded that uh, Havana syndrome was not caused by an unknown ray gun uh, and also has not been (laughs) perpetrated by some unspecified foreign enemy uh, against our brave. Oh, my uh, God. This is a shock. Jesus Christ. The Um, world is turned upside down. It's it is it, the world yes the world has turned upside this is an inflection point I think in history uh, <laughs> this is a hinge point for this to, to it's a hinge point um, it, now I want to be clear as as everybody who you know made this uh, was part of this announcement uh, on uh, I believe Friday yes it was Friday uh, was clear to say that they're not discounting the lived experience of the folks who claim to have contracted Havana syndrome uh, they see you they hear you. Uh, your 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 problems are are theirs, but they just don't think that any of them got zapped by a microwave gun, or uh, that Cuba or China or Russia or go on down the list uh, was responsible for making them feel bad. Now there is some hope. Uh, the uh, uh, the def- the Defense Department, the Pentagon, uh, is apparently still putting resources into studying Havana syndrome. Uh, and the potential for a directed energy weapon to have been used here. I'm sure they just want to find out for, uh, you know, help people. They're not trying to develop a weapon like that themselves or anything like that. Uh, I am a little bit worried that this is going to eat into the military budget, which uh, we can actually talk about in a moment. 
so you know we may have to to get that thing up over a trillion dollars uh, next year, maybe just to just to cover the cost of this investigation. But that's that's where things stand on on Havana syndrome. Uh, I think it was money well spent, Derek. So uh, I don't yeah, appreciate it will be. I mean, skepticism. It will be money well spent. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So uh, let's go over to uh, the United States. We we achieved something great recently, Derek. I, I'll leave it to you to announce <laughs> because it's it's really quite an accomplishment. Uh, yeah. So the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or CIPRI, which does the the best work on tracking global arms sales, uh, finds that the United States is number one. Again, for the period from 2017 to 2021, the U.S. accounted for some 39 percent of major arms deliveries worldwide. I'm quoting from William Hartung. He wrote a piece for Forbes about this. Uh, Over twice what Russia transferred and nearly 10 times what China sent to its weapons clients. So we've done it again. I think we've been number one on Cipri's report for, I don't know, time immemorial, basically. Uh, But we're we're still doing it. America is great. We're still number one, baby. Come Uh, on. We're still number one. Uh, So great news on that front. Uh, Great news, especially... Uh, for this is slightly different, not not entirely though. Uh, still part of the same culture. Great news for the people of Haiti. Uh, there's a new new report from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime that finds that illicit weapons from the United States are flooding into Haiti, uh, where they are being used by gangs and uh, basically creating uh, chaos, much like what's happening in Mexico, where U.S. guns have flooded that country and have allowed uh, cartels to militarize and uh, made the war on drugs that much more difficult, which then the U.S. can turn around and blame Mexico for not dealing with the war on drugs uh, without talking about the the guns. So I, I want to say uh, a hearty you're welcome uh, to the folks in Haiti, as we've said to the, the folks in Mexico, uh, for bringing them the freedom of, of uh, vast amounts of U.S. weaponry. Uh, I should also note uh, that the... Uh, the Biden administration is out with its new budget uh, or budget request. Uh, it's not going to, it won't be next year's budget, but their Pentagon budget is a cool $842 billion, which is $69 billion more than uh, the $773 billion uh, they requested for fiscal year 2023. By the time Congress pumps its uh, extra money in there and you get some, you know, extra spending on Ukraine, you get some extra spending on uh, overseas military conflicts, it will be up to uh, probably uh, right now uh, the total when you add in the nuclear budget uh, at the Department of Energy is $886 billion. So the Pentagon's $842. Uh, the total defense spending is $886. I think we can get over a trillion uh, after everybody crams their extras in, uh, I think we can do it next year. But but it, at most, I would say we're we're two years off. Thanks, Derek. Let's move on to the new Cold War. New Cold War. And let's start with South Korea, and particularly South Korea patching things up with Japan. Yes, this was announced. Uh, on Monday, the South Korean government has unveiled a plan to compensate Koreans who were uh, who performed forced labor during the Japanese occupation in World War II that essentially lets Japanese companies off the hook. Uh, the South Korean government would make reparations payments itself to these people. Uh, it, this is uh, has already drawn heavy criticism from, from victims groups, from anybody interested in sort of uh, retributive justice or, uh, you know, actually making the, the, the war criminals pay for what they did. Uh, but it is 
quite sensible from the perspective of a South Korean government that at this point is less interested uh, in seeing uh, justice done than it is in having this issue go away so that it can patch things up politically with Japan uh, because that's basically what uh, is makes most sense from a national security standpoint in terms of pre- presenting a united front against North Korea and in terms of uh, being more tightly integrated into the anti-China block that the U.S. is, is putting together in, the East, uh, in East Asia. Uh, so the hope, I think, is to get this issue of reparations off the, uh, the table to, to remove it as a political uh, football and that would open the door for South Korean governments to uh, improve relations with Japan. They've also apparently dropped uh, a beef that they were pushing at the World Trade Organization with Japan. So clearly this is, uh, this is something, you know, the South Korean government is really going hard at, at trying to patch things up. Uh, there was just an announcement on Thursday from both governments that uh, Yoon Suk-yeol, the, the president of South Korea, uh, and Japanese uh, Prime Minister Kishida Fumio will be meeting next week. They're going to have a summit, uh, which is not uh, something that happens very often, uh, just a bilateral summit, uh, to talk about strengthening ties, I would assume mostly defense ties, but this is a direct outcome uh, of the uh, reparations plan that the South Koreans announced this week. So what's been going on with AUKUS? AUKUS, which is, of course, is the nuclear submarine deal involving Australia, the UK, and the US, uh, people may be familiar with, uh, is finally uh, producing some fruit. Uh, the uh, Reuters reported on Wednesday, and uh, I, I don't know if it's already been announced or it will be announced next week. Uh, Australia has reached, Australia and the US have reached a deal under which uh, the Australian government will buy at least three and as many as five Virginia class attack submarines uh, from the US. Uh, there is uh, the plan ultimately is for all three countries to collaborate on a jointly developed submarine brand new submarine class by probably the late 2030s or 2040 at the at the outside uh but in the meantime australia is buying submarines from the u.s uh the u.s will be allowed to forward deploy some of its submarines to australia uh, of course, this has nothing to do with China. Uh, don't don't say that. Uh, we've been at pains to insist that it has nothing to do with China. Uh, but you know, it's it's probably just a coincidence that it it seems like it probably has everything to do with China. And let's talk about Biden's budget for the Pacific Islands. Yes. So another part of the budget apparently includes uh, a little bit over seven billion dollars in funding for the Marshall Islands, Micronesia, and Palau. Uh, this is part of the State Department's uh, request and the U.S. Agency for International Development request. Uh, these, this is money that's being uh, provided to these countries as they uh, renew their partnership agreements uh, with the United States, their compacts of free association. Uh, basically, you know, they held out for, for better terms, more aid from the U.S. And, and it's, again, a direct function of the competition with China for influence in the in the Pacific and among the Pacific Islands, uh, the U.S. doesn't want to lose uh, territory or basing. Uh, you know, if countries feel like they're getting a raw deal from the U.S., they could turn to China 
Uh, so this is money that's that's being spent. It's it's money that should be spent. I mean, it's things that uh, you could look at it as reparations for the United States testing nuclear weapons in that region for so you know during the the first Cold War. Uh, so I'm not begrudging it, but it it is part of this new Cold War competition. So let's move on to one of the biggest topics of the week, and that is, of course, uh, Chinese defense spending and their technological capabilities. So, yeah, this was a couple of stories earlier in the week. The Chinese government uh, unveiled its defense spending target for 2023. Uh, It's increasing defense spending by 7.2%. That's slightly higher than the 20 uh, its 2022 increase. Uh, It's significantly higher than the Chinese government's uh, growth projection, 5% GDP growth projection. Uh, it's certainly consistent. It's a level that's consistent with, with a buildup in expectation of some kind of a conflict. Uh, you know, whether that means, uh, China is planning to initiate a conflict or they're reacting to the fact that, uh, the United States seemingly can't stop talking about, uh, war with China, you know, whether overtly or, or not, uh, I can't say, uh, and even with the increase, it puts uh, Chinese spending at somewhere in a, a, a around $220 billion maybe to $250 billion on its military. So about a quarter with, of what we spent. Yeah, about a quarter. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm well aware that, that people complain when you do this, you, you, when you treat these things in raw dollar terms, because in terms of purchasing power parity, China's dollar probably goes farther than the U.S., uh, the problem with that is there's no good way to measure purchasing power parity on military goods. Uh, clearly, these are not you know, the same thing as uh, civilian goods, which is how you, you typically uh, measure PPP. So there's really no good comparison. But by any measure, the U.S. is still well outstripping China uh, on military spending. So, uh, yeah, it's it's still a fraction, but it, but it is a substantial increase. So uh, something to watch out for. On the technology front... Uh, there was a study from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute uh, published this week that determined that China is ahead of the U.S. in 37 of 42 categories of advanced technologies that it uh, came up with. These are things like hypersonic weapons, 6G telecommunications, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I wouldn't place, I'm sh- this got a lot of plays, so I'm sure people have heard about it, but I, I, ASPI is funded by the Australian government, the Taiwanese government, uh, defense firms, a lot of tech firms, every a lot of people who have a vested interest in, in hyping uh, this as a, as a problem. So I don't know how much uh, emphasis I would put on it. How much of that budget is going to American prestige? Uh, well, I haven't... Not enough. Uh, <laughs> President Xi hasn't... hasn't uh, uh, you know, hasn't reached out yet, but I'm I'm hoping We're uh, to have a conversation with him. <laughs> yeah, uh, Comrade Chi, if you're weeks. listening, uh, email producer Jake. We've got some things to discuss. Uh, all right, Derek, let's end with Taiwan and what's been going on over there. So there's been some talk that new U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will emulate his predecessor, Nancy Pelosi, and make a big divisive trip to Taiwan. Uh, but instead, this week, it, it uh, began to sound like uh, the Taiwanese may have the Taiwanese government may have put the kibosh on this. Uh, it sounds like instead, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, the president of China, is going to come to the U.S. Uh, and meet McCarthy during a layover in California. Um, I, I think this is probably sensible on her part. Pelosi's trip, I'm sure people remember from last August, drew a, a, a very harsh uh, response economically and militarily from Beijing. I would imagine the Taiwanese would prefer, prefer not to repeat that. Um, it is possible, of course, that uh, once Tsai meets with uh, McCarthy, 
in California, McCarthy could decide to visit Taiwan. Uh, after that, uh, I, I would feel, uh, I would send my condolences then to uh, Taiwanese officials who would have to meet with him twice. I think once is probably enough for most people. Uh, so that's possible, but it, it sounds like they're trying to gently kind of uh, in- discourage him from going to Taiwan. I'm sure he would like to do it to uh, prove that he's, you know, just as, I don't know, tough or whatever as Pelosi, uh, but uh, probably wouldn't be great for, uh, for Taiwan. Thank you, Derek. Um, And again, everyone, I hope you like this song. Please consider liking the podcast, sharing it with friends, or reviewing it because uh, reviewing actually does help with the algorithm. Uh, Everyone, thanks again for listening. We will see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.